Our Father, we thank you for the provision of Christ, our Savior, our Savior who has brought us into fellowship with Him, who has made us to be adopted into your family, who has made us to be united with Him in such a way that we are His bride, looking forward to the day when our marriage will be consummated at the marriage feast of the Lamb. We have been granted the Spirit as a sign of the unity that we have with you and with the Son. And not only have we been united together with you, but we are united together with one another. We are brother and sister in Christ. We who came from such diverse backgrounds, different places, different circumstances, different families, different means by which we came to trust in Christ, different people who revealed to us the truth of Christ as Savior, different backgrounds before we came to faith in Christ. And now we have one common life in Christ. And we pray, our Father, that as we think about coming back together very soon as as a body in corporate worship, gathering together in physical presence with one another, would you be shaping us and thinking and, 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 and controlling our thinking and conforming our thinking to what your word would have to say about us in our fellowship with one another, our unity with you, our unity and our connectedness with one another. And Father, would you help us to do the things that will produce sweet, kind, unified fellowship as we regather. And would you even use this morning to guide us in that thinking, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I have always loved and have often used the saying with which you are very familiar, I'm sure. I wasn't born in Texas, but I got here as fast as I could. Now, that is very true in my life. I wasn't born here. I was born in Canada, but I made my way here by the time I was seven and by and large have not left since then. The same could also be said of me and the church. I wasn't born in the church, but I got here as fast as I could. I do not remember a time when I haven't been part of a church. In my childhood years, I can only remember on Sundays and oftentimes during the week participating in worship services and attending Sunday school and vacation Bible school and being an integral part of the church, being connected to the church. All of my adult years, I've not only been a participant of the church, but I've been a member of a church and and fully engaged in the church. That has obviously continued in my role as a pastor. And for three decades, I have been an integral part of the church. The church is part of who I am. And yet, and yet the church is part of who I am, not just in my role as a pastor for my participation with the church and my delight in the church, 
precedes my becoming a pastor, and it will continue in my life long after I cease to be a pastor. The, the church in very many ways is my life, and, and it's that way for many of you as well. Because the church has been so much a part of my life, I have over the years had and continue to have many concerns for the church. I remember when I was probably in high school, maybe my early college years, I became aware of the fact that there was a persecuted church and people suffering for their faith and, and still being martyred for their faith. That, that was going on in those days and even continues these days, even though we delighted to see the, the communist wall fall and, and church worship being opened up in many communist countries, yet we understand that persecution of the church and martyrdom still exists in many places in our world. That's a concern of mine. Another concern of mine for the church is theological correctness and and for integrity to the Word of God. And we have spent many years here at Grace Bible Church beating back attacks from the world and even attacks within the church against corruptions of theology. And it seems every time that we, we face some kind of inroad of bad theology, corrupt theology, and we, we teach against it and just kind of get it suppressed, both in our own church and even at the church at large, it seems that three more things arise. And we're constantly watching out for attacks against the sheep, guarding the sheep, protecting us in purity. But, but of all the things that have been a concern of mine for the church... The thing probably that has surpassed all other things is my concern for the unity of the church. Before I ever came to this church, I prayed for this church, not knowing it by name, but praying that the Lord would produce peace and unity and harmony in us. And the whole time I've been here, that has been an ongoing prayer of mine, that the Lord would continue to preserve the unity that He has so graciously granted to us. And I do not take that unity for granted. The elders do not take the unity for granted. And and I do not think many members in our body take that unity for granted. It is It is a unique gift that the Lord has given to us. And one of my prayers during COVID-19 has not only been that the Lord would preserve our unity during these days when we are physically separated from one another, but that He would actually enhance our unity, that He would strengthen our unity, and that He would continue to give us joy in being united together. And we're coming towards a day when we will be regathered together. I don't know, as I said, when that day is, but, but we do believe it to be very soon. And we're, we're looking forward to that day. And as we, as we approach that day, I want us to think this morning particularly about the unity of the body of Christ and how that unity might be preserved and how that unity might be built up and, and what some particular things are that we might do in these really unique and we might even use the word bizarre days. What might we do to enhance our unity in these days? When a couple hears the words, I pronounce you husband and wife, they are in that very moment united. They are one. And yet, 
Just because they are united as husband and wife does not mean that they are united in heart and unified in heart. And even being married 10 years or 20 or 30 or 50 or 60 or more years does not mean that they have, that they are unified and marching in the same way. They, they are united, but they may not be living as if they're united. The same thing might be said of the church. The church, because we are the church of Jesus Christ, because we are united to Him in salvation, we are united together with each other. The question is not, are we united? In fact, the question is, are we united in reality? Are we living as if we are united? Are we unified in heart? And are we marching in the same direction with the same heartbeat? This passage this morning from Ephesians chapter 1 will not only reemphasize the fact that we are one, but it will help us in understanding how we might live as one. We have worked hard these days to maintain unity and fellowship and harmony and connectedness through technology, but we understand that there has still been an opportunity for us to cultivate individualistic mindsets and to let personal preferences take priority over our corporate responsibilities. So so our task this morning and this week and this month is to renew our minds about the role of the body and the importance of the unity of the body. And I want to do that this morning from Ephesians chapter 4. And as we look at these opening verses in this great chapter in the scriptures, what we are going to find is that our daily life in the church should be consistent with our eternal life with Christ. The Apostle Paul will will help us to understand the life that we have united with Christ, and he's going to make the connection between that life and the life that we have with one another. And there should be a congruence between those lives. There should be consistency between our life with Christ and our life with one another. And as we look at this passage, we will find four directives, four commands, four imperatives, four directives for the unity of the church. These are not suggestions, they're commands, and they relate directly to our relationship with Jesus Christ. Our daily life in the church should be consistent with our life in Jesus Christ. What are these four directives? The first is given to us in verse 1. It is to live worthy of Christ's calling. It is to live worthy of Christ's calling. In Ephesians 1 to 3, the apostle explains the position of the believer in Jesus Christ. He identifies many of the blessings that we have by being connected with Christ. And and we don't have time to unpack all of that this morning. Let me just suggest that you maybe make a notation in your outline to go back and read chapter 1 and start in verse 3 and read through verse 14. And just think about the connections that we have with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as they are unpacked in those verses and, and the joy of all of the spiritual blessings that we have with the triune Godhead. And, and in chapter 4, the apostle, having built this rich theology over the first three chapters about the blessings that we have in Christ, makes a connection between those blessings and how we are to live. And he makes note of that with the first word in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore. 
In other words, there are implications that arise from what we are in Christ. So we ought to live in particular kinds of ways. And the one, the one statement that he's going to make in verse one that guides everything else he's going to say in the rest of these three chapters, chapters four through six, three chapters in which he will give 30 imperatives for how we are to live and respond to Jesus Christ. The one overarching command that he makes is given here in verse one. Therefore, I implore you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Walk in a manner that is worthy of your salvation. That word walk simply means to live your life. The apostle means us to understand that we are to live purposefully and intentionally in our lives. The decisions that we are making, we ought to be making in a particular way. And that that particular way is that there ought to be correspondence. They ought to align with the calling of our salvation. Now, when he says that we are to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, with that word worthy, he does not mean that we're to live in a particular way in order to attempt to merit our salvation or produce our salvation. He simply means that the decisions we are making, the the words that we are speaking, the actions that we are taking, ought to align with, be consistent with, be in accordance with the way Christ called us to salvation. The way we live should match with and coordinate with God's purposes for our lives. The way we live is consistent with our name Christian. And that word Christian simply means little Christ. It's a, it's a diminutive term of the word Christ. We're, we're little Christs. We're little Jesuses. And we, we ought to live as if we are little Christs. And just what is, in verse 1, the calling with which we have been called? Well, well, that's everything that he has said in the first three chapters. He's, he's been unpacking that for us. And so this is just a, a shorthand way for him to say, everything I've just said, that's the way you ought to live. Your life ought to be consistent with that. Let me just summarize that with two aspects of worthiness that he has emphasized throughout those three chapters. What is your calling to which you have been called? The first thing to which you have been called as a believer is to personal holiness. You've been called to personal holiness. Go back to verse 1, or excuse me, chapter 1, verse 4. Speaking about the blessings that we have in Christ, he says in verse 4, just as he chose us in him. That word chose corresponds to the calling that we have in Jesus Christ. They're very similar words. He's using them in parallel or synonymous thought. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world so that we would be holy and blameless before him. Why did he choose us? Why did he call us? He called us so that we would have holy and transformed lives. He makes a similar point as he talks about the gospel 
in chapter 2. And you know these verses, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is, uh, it is the gift of God, not as the result of works, so that no man should boast. For we are his workmanship, verse 10, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk, there's our word again from chapter 4, verse 1, so that we would live in them. God saved us, granted His grace to us, not just to save us from the penalty of sin, but He saved us so that we would live in a particular kind of way. Verse 10, He says, for good works. He would saved us so that we would do good works, so that our lives would be transformed. This corresponds to what he said in chapter 1, verse 4, so that we would be holy. He wants us to have lives that are conformed to him, to be holy before him. The calling that brings us to God and unites us to him is a calling that makes us to be holy. So the first calling to which we were called is personal holiness. The other calling to which we were called is corporate unity. We're not only called to fellowship with God, but we are called to fellowship with one another. And and this really takes up from the middle of chapter 2 till almost the end of chapter 3. It starts in chapter 2, about verse 13, and really becomes strong in verse 16, and then runs through chapter 3, verse 13, and then he gives a benedictory prayer starting in verse 14 of chapter 3. So really for a chapter and a half, Um, Paul is emphasizing the unity that we have together as believers. And let me just give you a flavor of it. Chapter 2, verse 16, speaking about the Jews and the Gentiles, he says he brings them together that he might reconcile them in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. So there was enmity between God and man. There's also enmity between between Jew and Gentile, between mankind, between men and fellow men. And and God has put that aside in order to bring us together as one corporate entity before Him. He is reminding us that we are unified and we should live unified. Will, will there be sacrifices in order to live according to this kind of calling? Are there sacrifices in order to be holy and, and to live in corporate unity with one another? Absolutely. He even draws attention to that by the way he talks about um, how he is calling the Ephesian believers to live this way. Notice what he says, verse 1. I, the prisoner of the Lord. Now, he is writing this letter from prison in Rome. So he is under the authority of the Roman government. He's been imprisoned in, in what we would call a, a house, um, a house arrest setting. But he's imprisoned. He doesn't have liberty and freedom to go wherever he wants. But even more than his imprisonment to the government, he says, I am a slave of Christ. I am imprisoned to him. He is my master and I submit to him. And yet, and yet while there is that enslavement to Christ, Paul would also have us to realize that, that in enslavement to Christ is where we really have life and liberty. It's only when we are enslaved to Christ that we are free from enslavement to the world 
only when we are enslaved to Christ are we free from the death that sin brings. So he says in chapter 2, verse 5, We were dead in our transgressions and sins, but we have been made alive together with Christ. So Christ has set us free. But that doesn't mean we're free to do whatever we want. We are enslaved to Him. He is our Master. And because of that, the Apostle recognized the demands that that's going to put on the Ephesians. And so he says, verse 1, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. I, I implore you. I, I beseech you. I encourage you. I exhort you. I appeal to you that you would live and walk in this way. He is well aware that there are challenges of our calling that go against the flesh, but that there is a worthiness to that calling, a rightness to that calling. And that is what we are to do. We are to live worthy of the calling of Christ. Because we're unified with Him, because we're connected to Christ, we're intentional in pursuing life choices that are consistent with God's purposes for our lives. So the first directive that the Apostle gives us is that we live worthy of Christ's calling. The second directive he will give us in these verses is to cultivate attitudes of Christ-likeness, to, to cultivate attitudes of Christ-likeness. We see this at the beginning of verse 2. He, he is carrying that verb forward, walk in a manner worthy of the calling, so continue walking. And how will we walk? Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness and patience. If we are going to pursue lives that are worthy of Christ, that are consistent with our calling of being in Christ, it's going to start with internal attitudes. So there will be, there will be things that we will cultivate in our minds and in our hearts that will precipitate change in the way we conduct ourselves. And, and he identifies three of those attributes at the beginning of verse two. First, he will tell us to cultivate humility, cultivate humility. Now, humility was despised by the Greeks, but the Greeks weren't the only people that who have ever despised humility, are they? Americans don't particularly have a high view of humility either. The Greeks considered humility to be, quote, a derogatory term suggesting low-mindedness and groveling servility. It was not a commended quality. If someone was called humble, it was, it was, it was to cast aspersion on their character. It was, it was not something that was highly regarded or esteemed. And yet the scriptures consistently exalt humility and we recognize that, that the proud are brought down by God. Consider, for instance, uh, just a couple of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 15. Verse 25, it tells us, The Lord will tear down the house of the proud, but He will establish the boundary of the widow. So the widow, the one who is humble, the one, the one who has very little, that is the one that God will, will grant sufficiency to, that is the one that God will provide for, but the one who is proud, that is the one that God will bring low. 
chapter 16, verse 5, Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. And, and that theme runs not only through the Proverbs, but all through the Scriptures, that God exalts those who are humble and he brings down those who are prideful. That, that even goes to our, our very salvation, doesn't it? That even, even the way we come to Christ must be with humility. That we must, we must recognize that we are broken. That we, that we come to God not with any, any gifts, no strength, no ability, no righteousness of our own, but that we are poverty stricken. That's what Jesus says in, in uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, we are poor in spirit. We are spiritually poverty-stricken. We have nothing to give Him. And until we come to Christ with that attitude, we'll never be saved. Our own salvation begins with humility. And Christ, excuse me, Paul is telling us here, if we want to live worthy, we need to cultivate humility in our hearts. We also need to not only cultivate humility, we need to cultivate Notice verse 2, gentleness, gentleness. This is the word that is sometimes translated meek. And that also does not have a good reputation in our culture, does it? It's a word that's associated with weakness. But this word does not mean weakness. It means power under control. And it, and it, it is pictured by, by a horse even a racehorse that is a powerful horse, but it is under the control of the bit and the bridle. We might, we might make a more modern analogy that an automobile is under the authority and under the control of a clutch and a steering wheel. It is, it is a powerful entity and yet it is controlled by those instruments. This, this word of meekness, gentleness, is often used in our relationships with others. Gentleness is the kind of response that that is given to those who sin and particularly even those who sin against us. If you just turn back a couple of pages to Galatians chapter 6, we see this in the first two verses. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual... Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, of meekness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted and thereby bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. Those who are sinners, we have no hostility against them, but we are in control as we relate to them, pointing them to the hope that is found in Christ and His forgiveness. The gentle person is the one who is willing to suffer the burdens of sin that others inflict on them and against them. He waives his own rights in consideration of others. He is just like our King. Isn't, Isn't this like our Savior Jesus? You remember what it says of Him, Matthew chapter 12, quoting from Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles, to those who are outside the covenant people of Israel. Christ proclaimed the truth even to them. He will not quarrel nor cry out 
nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Listen to verse 20, Matthew 12. A battered reed he will not break off. A smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Oh, brothers and sisters, this is our Savior who is gentle towards those who are broken and in need of a Savior. Sin is inconvenient. Whether it is an inconsiderate driver, an ungracious word that has been untimely spoken, an intentional inflicted offense, or something that is deliberately taken against us, there is a cost to sin. And a gentle person is one who responds in a way that is conducive to producing reconciliation and restoration for that brother and with that brother. So cultivate humility and cultivate gentleness and cultivate, thirdly, the apostle says in verse 2, patience. The word patience refers to a long holding out of the mind before it gives in to action or passion. The, the patient man is a steadfast man. He, he doesn't give in even when there is a long delay. And it particularly relates not to circumstances and not to objects, but it relates particularly to people. It is a willingness to endure even when injustice is suffered, when, when injustice is poured out against him. And while enduring, um, it is also willing to, not willing to engage in retaliation. The patient person doesn't retaliate. The, the patient person is willing to wait for God to produce righteous retribution. And friends, this, this is exactly, this is exactly what God has done for us in saving us. And when we are patient with others, even when they sin against us, we are demonstrating what Christ has done with us. You know, it's, it's one thing to have to wait patiently for a, pay, a, a package from Amazon. I was, um, I was really excited. I, I came up with an idea for Ray Jean's birthday in March and I jumped on Amazon and I thought I'm gonna, I'm, I'm planning ahead. I was thinking about a week ahead and I thought if I, if I order this now, it'll get here in time for her birthday and I was so proud of myself and I, I looked down, you know, the expected delivery date. It said Friday and I said, great, it's gonna be here right before her birthday and, uh, we can enjoy, we can enjoy that and, and I hit the order button. And then it said, guaranteed delivery, April 25. April 25, that's, that's like five weeks from now. What happened? And, and what happened was COVID-19 happened and it was de- deemed to be a non-essential delivery. And it was not a two-day delivery, but it was a five-week delivery wait time. Oh, I don't know about you, but, but I am, I'm impatient in waiting for those kinds of things. Well, it's one thing to wait patiently for an Amazon package. It's a whole lot harder, isn't it, to wait patiently for people who have sinned against us, for people who are persisting in a life pattern of sinfulness. How long will you wait for people to change or repent? How quickly do you give up on people? My friends, patience 
is essential for unity because people change slowly. And when we are impatient, the slowness for people to change and our impatience with that will only produce broken relationships. It will not produce harmony. It will not produce fellowship. It will only produce brokenness. But patience will preserve those relationships. To live worthy of Christ is a tremendous and difficult calling. And if we're going to be changed, it will start from the inside out. Attitudes that need to be changed, desires that need to be changed. So cultivate attitudes of Christ-likeness. The apostle will also tell us at the end of verse 2, patiently love Christ's people Patiently love Christ's people. Notice what he also says at the end of verse 2, showing tolerance for one another in love. Now, when you, when you see that word tolerance, don't think about the word that is bandied about on social media that we ought to be tolerant of everyone. Don't, don't think about tolerance as the way it is used in our culture. That's not the way the apostle is using that word. Biblical tolerance, and and that word is used about ten times by the Apostle Paul, means to endure. It means to hold up. It means to, to put up with difficult behavior, even when others are difficult, even when others sin against us. It, it probably could be taken as synonymous even with patience. One commentator says of tolerance that it is, quote, accepting them in their uniqueness, including their weaknesses and faults and allowing them worth and space. It's acceptance. It's not just, it's not just endurance. It's not just a gritting of the teeth, but it is, it is acceptance. It is embracing. It is, it is loving. And, and notice that the apostle uses that term showing tolerance in the present tense, which means This is something that we need to do on an ongoing basis. It's not just a matter of, well, I showed you tolerance once and and that was enough. I fulfilled my duty, but you've persisted and now I don't have to be tolerant with you anymore. No, 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 no. Tolerance is something that needs to be done on a regular and consistent basis and pattern. And notice that it is also for one another. And that means that sometimes I need to... Be tolerant of your actions and endure and embrace your actions. And sometimes you need to be tolerant and endure and embrace my actions, which are difficult. I need tolerance from you and you need tolerance from me. We both need tolerance, acceptance, embracing of one another. And notice how the apostle says, we might cultivate tolerance. It is done, at the end of verse 2, he says, in love. We show tolerance by loving one another, by doing best what is, what is best for each other without regard for what the cost is to us because we love Jesus Christ. Love is the means to demonstrating tolerance with one another. That little add-on phrase in love is critically important. It means that we are not just biting our lips and saying, I'm going to tolerate you and I'm going to tolerate you until the end. No. Brothers, it means that we embrace 
each other. That when we are different from one another, that when we are moving at different at different speeds of spiritual maturity, when we are progressing at different rates of maturity, when we are making different choices as it relates to personal preferences, we don't just grit our teeth and say, well, I've got I've to make it through this. No. It means that we are welcoming one another, loving one another, rejoicing in the differences that we have with one another, and rejoicing in the opportunities that we have to serve one another in spite of the differences that we have with one another. Here's the principle about tolerance. We are extending to them the same affection and grace that God has extended to us. Oh, brothers and sisters, God has been so tolerant with us. He has been so gracious and persistent in His grace with us. And because He continues to keep us united in fellowship with Him, it is our joy to extend that same kind of loving tolerance of one another when we make choices and do things differently from others that are in the flock of God. This love, this tolerance of one another is our testimony, isn't it? Is it any wonder that Jesus says in John chapter 13, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is, this is countercultural. This is not the way the world operates, but this is the way the world of Christ operates. And when we embrace each other and love each other in these ways, when we sometimes are so very different, it becomes an attraction point. It becomes a magnet for the world to say, what is it about you that has made you so different that enables you to live in such a way? And we're going to talk about this more in a moment, but this kind of attitude, friends, is vital these days. Opinions abound about what is best to do about COVID-19, even within immediate families. Husbands and wives might have different perspectives. Parents and children might have different perspectives. Elders and pastors might be divided and and I'm so grateful that, that our elders and pastors are of one mind in this, but, but they could be divided. Churches and its members might be divided. And friends, as we come back together soon, we need to be tolerant of one another in love as we recognize that some of us are making different decisions about how best to conduct ourselves in these days. So live worthy of Christ's calling. Cultivate attitudes of Christ-likeness. Patiently love Christ's people. The fourth directive Paul gives us is to be intentional in preserving the unity of Christ's body. That's verse 3. Preserve the unity of Christ's body. In the opening section, verses 1 to 17 of this chapter, the theme of unity dominates this. When Paul talks about unity here, he's talking about a particular kind of unity. He's talking about the unity of the Spirit. In other words, it is the unity that the Spirit produces. This is, this is not a man-made unity. 
This is a God-made unity. It is, a, it is the unity that was prayed for by Christ in the garden. It is the unity that was produced by Christ on the cross. It is the unity that is granted to us by the Spirit. This is the unity that brings us to God the Father as His sons. This is, this is Trinitarian-produced unity. This is not what we do. This is what God does for us. This is not something that we can do. This is not something that we can make. If we are in Christ, this is a reality. This is something we already have. In other words, Christ's church is already unified. And, and that, that theme of the unity that we have with Christ dominates these opening verses. He, he talks about unity directly. He talks about oneness. He talks about all. He talks about each other and one another. About 15 times in these opening 16, 17 verses, he talks directly about the unity that we have as believers. This, this is the dominant theme in this section. So, if God has produced this unity, what then is our responsibility in relation to the unity? We don't make it, but we do live and act in such a way that demonstrates this unity is true and we live to preserve the unity that we have. And so notice that the apostle says, verse 3, being diligent. He, 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 he means that, um, he, he means by that that we are to understand an urgency and a haste in our actions. Spare no effort to be unified. Prioritize unity. Make sure it's at the top of your to-do list. And then he says, be diligent to preserve. That means to keep or to guard. In other words, our unity should remain unharmed. And, and both those words, be diligent and preserve, again, they are present tenses. So he means us to understand that this is something that we are to continually be working on and working towards. Unity in a church brothers and sisters, is no easier than unity in a business or unity in a marriage. It is something that takes constant attention. And just as we are working with constant attention to bring unity in our marriages, so we want to be working constantly to bring unity in the body of Christ. How will we keep our unity? Notice what he says. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Peace is, is a gift that God gives us in Christ. Jesus Christ, chapter 2 tells us, came preaching peace. The message of the gospel, chapter 6, will tell us is peace. And peace is a gift of God to all believers that we have because of our relationship with Him. We find that at the end of chapter 6, verse 23. So, so peace is connected directly to our salvation. Peace is what we have with God because of the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And that that peace that we have with God is what drives the unity that we are seeking to preserve. We might say it this way. Because we have been reconciled to Jesus Christ, by Jesus Christ, to God, and we have peace with God, that peace that we have with Him overflows into all of our relationships with one another and becomes the guiding principle 
for how we maintain unity in our relationships with each other. Just at a practical level, what does that look like? It means that we are constantly pursuing reconciliation and restoration. It means that we do not let sin lie dormant. It doesn't mean that we allow sin to fester, but that we are aggressive and gracious and gentle, but persistent in pursuing sin so that we can be reconciled to one another. It it is hard for Regine and me to believe, but we have been married 33 years. And those years have gone very quickly. And as we have... We have looked even the other night. We were um, sitting together and just kind of reflecting on some things and, and talking about some issues in our lives. And I just looked at her and I said, you know, for all of the challenges that we have been facing these days, this is the sweetest time in our marriage relationship. And she agreed with me that, that the Lord has seen fit to make these days the best days. And there's harmony and there's unity and there's fellowship. And brothers and sisters, if I, if I could tell you there, there, the one thing that has produced the harmony and the fellowship that we enjoy, it's a few simple words and sentences that are spoken from the heart. And those words go something like this. I sinned against you. I was wrong in what I did. I ask for your forgiveness for that sin. Will you forgive me? Yes, I forgive you. We have been so intentional in pursuing reconciliation and restoration that has produced peace and that has produced unity. And same thing works in the body of Christ. When we pursue peace with one another, it brings unity and fellowship. In fact, the things that you have that the relationships that you have where you have had to work the hardest to produce reconciliation and restoration because of sin are very likely going to be the sweetest relationships, the places where you have the most harmony and the most unity. And so, brothers and sisters, if we are going to preserve unity in the body of Christ, it is going to be through peace with one another. So, unity with one another. We accomplish that by these four directives, living worthy of Christ's calling, cultivating attitudes of Christ-likeness, patiently loving Christ's people, preserving the unity of Christ's body. I want to just now think with you for a couple of minutes about some principles from this passage for regathering Christ's church. Um, I I said a few minutes ago that that to live worthy of Christ is a tremendous and difficult calling. And if we're going to be changed, it it starts from the inside out. And we're going to need to learn to think differently about others. And and these are simply some principles, some, some guiding directives for how we might think about others as we come back together as a body of believers. There is much diversity of opinion about what the appropriate things to do, 
when we regather are, the timing of when we do those things. Some are going to think we're acting too quickly. Some are going to think we're acting too slowly. Some are going to think we're acting too cautiously. Some are going to think that we're acting too rashly. So, So how will we conduct ourselves in those kinds of relationships so that unity is preserved? The goal is not just to endure, but to be unified with one another. And, and I'm talking about these things. We're talking about these things not because we're reacting. We're not, we're not saying, oh, we've seen 16 things and we're just, we're just trying to talk to direct, directly to particular kinds of people. That's not the issue here. This is just a general, how can we prepare ourselves? How can we prepare our hearts as we come back together to worship together? How can we preemptively plan for this coming together? Now, I don't know exactly what the plan is going to look like. We're still working on that. But I do know some possibilities. I do know some things that are likely to happen. And I do know that because some things are changing so rapidly that some of the things even that I mentioned this morning might be changed by the time we get back together. But but all of these kinds of things are on the table. And, and, and these are the kinds of things that are going to produce a diversity of opinion. When we gather back together, it is possible that we will be wearing masks while on campus the entire time we're on campus, including while we are singing in corporate worship. It may include signing up for worship services and having assigned seating when you come to worship so that you will know you're going to be sitting on the right side, row three, seats four through six, just like when you go to a ball game or a concert. And, and we're going to do that in order to try and maximize seating in the ministry building. There's not going to be coffee. There won't be snacks. There won't be any unwrapped food on campus. Here's a hard one. No hugging. No high-fiving, no handshaking, maintaining a six-foot distance as much as possible. Fellowship times outside, no Sunday school classes on campus for now. Uh, only one worship service, and that worship service being at 11 o'clock and not in the sanctuary, but in the ministry building. Uh, possibly providing separate seating in a separate room for um, at-risk attendees, if they are particularly at risk, they aren't sure if they want to come because they're at risk to provide a room where all of the at-risk people can attend if they want to go to that room. Again, I don't know everything that we're going to do, but I do know that all those things are on the table. I do know that many of those things probably will be part of the practices, and I do know it will be atypical. It will not feel normal. And it's probably going to conflict not only with some of your personal practices. Frankly, some of the things that we're going to do probably are going to conflict with some of my own personal choices and my own personal practices. So, so how do we handle that? How do we relate to one another when the choices we're making as a body differ with the choices we're making personally? So here are six or seven quick principles for you. One, determine to be more concerned about personal purity than personal rights. It is fine. It is even appropriate to exercise rights and freedoms that we enjoy. That, that's a civil liberty we have. And there's even a sense in which that's a spiritual liberty to, to enjoy the rights that we have in this culture. But every exercise of my rights needs to be done with spiritual 
integrity. I cannot insist on rights belligerently. And frankly, friends, the church in America has a terrible reputation with that. We, we are belligerent as a church body in America saying we have a right to something. And we have taken our civil liberties much higher than our calling as believers in Christ to live in holy and meek and gentle and gracious ways. I cannot exercise my rights with pride and with arrogance. Every exercise of my rights needs to pass the test of this passage. Is the exercise of my rights being done with humility, with gentleness, with patience? Frankly, a simple test might be, would Christ in his infinite righteousness do what I am about to do. And my calling is to be like him. And I want my actions to emulate what the actions of Christ might be. Friends, Christ didn't call me to have rights. Christ called me to be like him. No one has given up or had any more rights taken away than Jesus Christ And listen what was said about him when he had his rights taken away. You have been called for this purpose, Peter says in his first letter, chapter 2, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Instead of insisting on our rights, can we trust God for our circumstance? And can we conduct ourselves in holiness? Might our concern be most for our own holiness and not for our civil liberties? Secondly, be willing to give up your preferences for the benefit of others because you love others. Personal preferences are fine. It's appropriate to have personal preferences. Frankly, we need personal preferences to just navigate through life and make life work. But personal preferences are fine only until they become immoral or unloving. My right to swing my fist ends at the front of your nose. I don't have a right to make my fist hit the front of your nose. That's not only immoral, friends. It's unloving. And as followers of Jesus Christ, who gave up the privileges of heaven to be our servant and to die for us, are we willing to give up what might be our civil liberties in order to fulfill Christ-like obligations. I don't know yet what all of the things are that we're going to have to give up as we gather together, but it will likely include no hugging and no handshaking, at least for now, and may well include wearing masks, at least for now. The best medical counsel that we have right now as a country says that that's a wise way to live. Is it a legal mandate? Is it law? No, But is it an act of love 
that demonstrates I care for others more than I care for myself? Yes. Just just think about Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of your mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Isn't that what Christ did when he came to the cross? He didn't come to the cross for himself. He came to the cross for me because he regarded me, because he regarded you. Friends, can you imagine Jesus Christ refusing to wear a mask because he had a right not to wear a mask? I think Jesus Christ is at the front of the line picking up a mask and saying, today, this is the best way that I can demonstrate my love for another. One implication for this might be that it would be tempting for us to say, well, you know, until things get back to normal, I'm just a hugging kind of person. I'm not a mask-wearing kind of a person. I just can't gather with all those kinds of people. How about this? How about if we say, that may not be my personal preference, but because I want to demonstrate how much I love another, I will come and withhold my rights to those things so that I can demonstrate my love for others by doing the things that are contrary to my personal preferences. Third principle, make choices, but be humble about those choices. We looked at Psalm 139 a few weeks ago, where we understand that only God is omniscient. Only God makes perfect choices all the time. And no matter how much you are reading about COVID-19, no matter how much I am reading about COVID-19, brothers and sisters, we do not have all of the information. In fact, much of the information that we have likely is misinformation. Or if it is correct information, others have interpreted it incorrectly for us or we are interpreting it incorrectly. And we need to understand that while we have made choices, we likely have made choices that that are imperfect choices. I am well aware that some of the choices that I have made during this season have been incorrect choices, unloving choices, ungracious choices, inconsistent choices. Why have I done that? Not because I've wanted to be mean towards others, but just because I'm fallible. I'm not omniscient. I don't know. Brothers and sisters, make your preferences, but hold them loosely. Understand that that the choices you make, while, while you have a right to make those choices, they actually may be misinformed. And we don't need to hold on to those things dogmatically. Along with that, distinguish between wisdom choices, preferences, and moral choices. Moral choices are clear. It's immoral to gossip. It's immoral to fornicate or adulterate or covet or be deceitful or steal taxes. It's immoral not to honor the government or speak angrily. Those are easy. The hard places are preferential choices. And preferential choices are less clear because to us they feel like moral choices. Our preferences sometimes become so strong we think it's right and wrong, moral and immoral, when it is not moral and immoral. It's simply the choice that I've made in that moment about the best way to live. What kind of choices are we talking about? We're talking about the choice tonight. Do I, do I watch a movie or do I read a book? Do I eat chicken or steak or do I eat only vegetables? 
Will I live in a 500 square foot house, a 1500 square foot house, or a 2500 square foot house? Do I buy a new car or a used car? For whom will I vote? Masks or no masks? Hugs or no hugs? And because all of these things are preferences and not moral commitments, brothers and sisters, what guides us is that we tolerate them and we tolerate them in love. We don't just, we don't just grit our teeth and say, I don't like this. But we say, I will extend love towards my brother in enduring with him. We do not ridicule. We do not condemn. We do not demean. We do not stay away. We lovingly embrace and welcome. Be patient with and embrace figuratively for now. Be patient with and embrace with joy those who make different choices than you. Again, I not only need to endure the preferential choices of others that are different from mine, but I need to embrace them. Brothers and sisters, I need to champion them. I need to encourage others to wholeheartedly pursue their choices even if they are in conflict with mine. Again, I'm not talking about moral choices. That's a different category. I'm talking about preferences. And I need to champion those things for others. And just just a side note, we need to be careful about making assumptions about people and the reasons behind which they are making their preferential choices. There's not only liberty for different choices, But friends, they may have circumstances that I am unaware of that that I need to think maybe there's some other component to the decision they're making that I don't understand that is guiding them to make the decision they're making. And if I had all of the facts that went into their making their decision, I might well make the same decision that they are making. Be patient with circumstances. I know this isn't normal. I know you want normal. So do I. I I am a creature of routine. My wife will tell you. Keith will tell you. My children will tell you. All of my closest friends will tell you. I thrive on routine. And nothing has been routine these months. I know you want normal. So do I. But friends, what is normal for the believer is suffering and hardship. And I don't know what the new normal is going to be. I don't know if we will ever go back to worship the way it was on March 8th before we went into being sheltered in place. But I do know that when we get to heaven, that however long we have to endure endure this, that that time of endurance will seem very short and the cost that we have had to pay will seem very light And the fellowship that we have in heaven will be very long. Oh, brothers and sisters, this is well worth any cost that we have to make to prepare us for the joys of heaven. Finally, remember this is all about Christ. I was very intentional in my outline this morning. Live worthy of Christ's calling. Cultivate attitudes of Christ-likeness. Patiently love Christ's people. Preserve the unity of Christ's body. Friends, this isn't about us. This is about Christ, about his headship, about his authority, about honoring him. This isn't about my preferences. This is about exalting the one to whom I am united 
by the means of the one who united me to him, Jesus Christ. All we have is from him and for him and to him. As we regather shortly, soon, let that be preeminent in our minds. It's all about our Savior. Our Father, would you give us wisdom as we regather? These issues are complex. They are not simple. They are weighty. They are hard. They are heavy. Would you grant us wisdom in handling those personally? Would you give us wisdom in setting directions and criteria and practices corporately that will be helpful, protective, safe, gracious for the entire body? And might we be wise in the way we carry those things out with one another? And in so doing, Father, would you be pleased to protect, preserve, guard, and keep the unity that we have with you and with one another? Would you do that, Lord, so that we might give you even greater glory? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.